to you from the AT&T Podcast Studio. This is Long Story Short. I'm Ted Struley, the Executive Director at Oklahoma Watch. We're a statewide nonprofit news organization that specializes in investigative reporting. You're listening to our weekly podcast, which lets you hear directly from our journalists as they provide deeper insight into their recently published stories. Jennifer Palmer covers education for Oklahoma Watch. Her latest story looks at an upcoming requirement for high schools to offer advanced placement courses. Jennifer, tell us about the new requirement. Right. So this requirement will kick in next school year. So uh, the 24-25 school year. And it is um, that every high school in the state of Oklahoma must offer at least four AP courses. And for those who might not be familiar, uh, can you tell us a little, you know, what what is an AP course? How's that different from regular high school classes? Sure. So um, AP, you know, it stands for Advanced Placement, and it is essentially a rigorous college-level curriculum that is um, standardized throughout the country. I mean, you can find the same AP courses taught in Oklahoma that's taught in other states Um, The teachers have special training in order to do this. And the biggest difference is at the end of the course, um, there's a a big test. And if students do well on that test, um, they can get college credit. What do students like about advanced placement? I mean, the college credit is obviously a a big um, attraction. But I think students also um, take AP courses to um, make their college applications stand out. And they do that in a couple of ways. I mean, one, just taking courses and doing well in them shows that they're, um, you know, doing rigorous courses and and able to achieve in those. Um, But they also can count for more than four points toward their GPA. And so this is a way that some students use to kind of supercharge their GPA and get it above a 4.0 even um, by factoring those into the normal 4.0 scale. You collected some data on AP courses. What did that tell you? Right. I did get some data from the um, college board, which oversees AP, um, to see, I I wanted to see how close we were to meeting that minimum um, that kicks in next year. And I had heard it was was low, and so I wanted to see for sure. And the data did show, um, this was for last year, the full year, um, that only one in four high schools last year taught four or more AP courses. So what what reasons did school officials have for not offering AP classes? There were a couple of reasons, um, mostly kind of fell into two buckets. I mean, some school leaders told me their students don't, um, don't want to take AP, they'd rather take concurrent. Um, and I heard this a lot, if given the option, students would rather take a concurrent course, which is a college course that you can take in high school, and the state covers the tuition um, for juniors and seniors. So um, for students, that's more of a guaranteed credit, like as long as they do well in the class, they should get college credit for it. The AP courses depend on that test, right? So even if they do well in the course, but they don't do well on the test, they may not get college credit. So that was one reason. And then the other reason, um, you know, it kind of boils down to staffing. I mean, uh, some of the school leaders um, I talked to, these are very small schools and, you know, in rural areas mostly. 
Um, they don't have any AP certified teachers or they have one and she's already teaching, you know, biology and chemistry and can't, um, you know, the, the principal doesn't want to take her off of that to teach an AP course for one or two students. So is the lack of AP courses mainly a problem for rural schools? In Oklahoma, definitely. Um, you know, the data was very clear on that. The schools that offer lots of AP courses are all in suburban and urban school districts. And the ones that don't offer any or only offer a handful are all in, in smaller rural areas. So what's the solution? So some of the school leaders I talked to said they will be fulfilling the new requirement um, mostly through online. Um, there's a state um, platform that schools can use. And I know they were really prepared for schools to be ramping up this year and are preparing for next year as well, um, that schools can use this online platform. Um, many of the AP courses are free or have a small fee for the school district and they come with the teacher. Now these are, you know, online. And so some school leaders said, well, well we're going to try to, you know, at least offer maybe one in person and supplement the rest um, through online. Well, with three quarters of the schools not uh, being up to speed to meet that new requirement yet, has there been any discussion about uh, uh, rolling back the requirement or giving schools more time to find a way to comply? You know, there really hasn't. I talked to the uh, the bill's author. This bill was passed in 2020, by the way. So it, it you know, there's already been several years of of lead time for school districts to get these um, AP courses on track. Now, of course, we had, you know, a pandemic between then. So um, schools were a little busy with other things. But um, so I talked to the bill's author, Rhonda Baker, and you know, she doesn't want to roll this back. Um, she really thinks that um, these opportunities need to be available to students now and like yesterday. And, you know, it at least needs to be there for the students that can and want to achieve and take these courses. All right. Well, thanks, Jennifer. Uh, you can read all of Jennifer's coverage of education in Oklahoma on our website, oklahomawatch.org. While you're there, you can also subscribe to her weekly newsletter, Education Watch. Reporter Paul Monies has done more reporting on the state's new law that forbids pension funds from doing business with financial companies perceived to be hostile to Oklahoma's oil and gas industry. Paul, what's the latest on the implementation of that law? Yeah, so if you remember this law, uh, State Treasurer Todd Russ is in charge of implementing it, and he put a list of restricted financial companies that he determined were boycotting the energy industry, uh, according to some questionnaires his office sent out earlier this year. Um, now, six companies have now ended up on that list, uh, including the Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, but Treasurer Rush has been critical of the pension system, which has taken an exemption to the law. Uh, but his office also still does business with both Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase. Well, what did the treasurer say about the exemptions used by his own office? Well, he said that he kind of had to take them because they're more on the, the banking side of these large financial companies' services and less on the investment side, which he has a problem with some of the philosophy of the investment side of these uh, large financial companies. And so he's basically said, look, uh, Bank of America provides credit card services to the state. 
We can't easily get out of those contracts. Uh, we're going to have to take an exemption to the law in that, a very narrow exemption that he said is in the law. Also on the um, J.P. Morgan Chase side, uh, there's about 300 and something million dollars every day mixed up in J.P. Morgan Chase money market accounts, part of a $16 billion portfolio that the Treasurer's Office manages himself. Uh, he said it's just too big of a, a chunk of investment to kind of get out of. And that's still more on the banking side than the investment side. So he, he's negotiating with that company on an exemption for that as well. Well, right. And you wrote in your story that uh, Russ called it, you know, more of a day to day checking account. Right. He drew a, a delineation there between uh, investments and uh, sort of day to day operational funds. But uh, part of the law, as I recall, when this was written, uh, it, wasn't only about banks that invested in oil and gas, but also banks lending to oil and gas industries. That some of them had adopted policies that uh, restricted any kind of activity in oil and gas. So it it wasn't solely their investment activities that the law was meant to address, was it? That's right. Yeah, and it's just basically doing business because the the state also has a part of the law that applies right now to cities and counties, um, and so that forbids them from taking loans out from these banks too, which is definitely not on the investment side either. Uh, and of course, you're right. Um, the 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 problems that the Russ and lawmakers had is basically with these huge financial firms that have said that they're more uh, paying attention to climate goals and climate action pledges than the investment side, and so they the state treasurer and lawmakers have a problem with that side of things. What has Russ had to say about pension funds that have used the exemptions? Yeah, so the, the biggest example in Oklahoma is the Oklahoma Public Employees Retirement System. Uh, it has about $12 billion in assets for retirees um, that were state employees. Uh, now, about 60% of those investments are handled by BlackRock, which is one of the largest financial firms in the world. Um, now, they have gone through a process um, and decided to take what's called a fiduciary duty exemption to the law. They said it would cost too much to get out of that huge chunk of investment and that, that basically there's an exemption in law that they can take and that they, they, they voted to take uh, back in the summer. Now, uh, apart from those exemptions, uh, there's a state retiree who has sued to try to uh, put a stop to this law, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, a retiree from Tulsa uh, used to work for the state for about more than 10 years or so. Um, he is now uh, retired after that in private industry from the Tulsa refinery. And uh, he is also a former uh, officer with Oklahoma Public Employees Association and a former trustee for the pension system, too, that he now is a beneficiary of. And he said that basically the law is unconstitutional, uh, that it basically interferes with the, the duties of those trustees at that pension board uh, to, to use that those funds for the exclusive benefit of retirees. And also said the law was um, basically overly vague and violates free speech protections for those companies. Well, and I think he uh, pointed out either in an interview or in that petition that uh, he has both been uh, an employee of the oil and gas industry uh, as well as the state retiree and uh, yet feels he wants his money, uh, his retirement money left right where it is, uh, regardless of the bank's uh, strategy around fossil fuels. That's right. Yeah, he said he's not anti-oil and gas. He's obviously worked and got a, a good career out of that, that industry as well, but sees that this is overly political interference in that pension system's workings. All right. Well, several other states have adopted similar laws, very similar laws. Why is this an issue now? 
Yeah, this has come up in the last few years. Um, it's been pushed by some conservative groups who have kind of felt that the shareholders at some of these huge financial firms have gotten overly uh, kind of uh, on the side of environmental goals uh, at the expense of investments. And so they're really driving the train on a lot of this and have offered moderate legislation to several states. Uh, Texas was the first one to put it in place. And then Oklahoma, a couple other states have since followed suit. But it's basically a kind of a... Uh, the pendulum is swinging back towards people who want investments just for the investment's sake, rather than kind of some of these social and environmental goals for these companies. All right. Now, do you think Oklahoma lawmakers are likely to make changes in the law when the legislature resumes in February? Yes, we've had an interim study on this law and an implementation of it uh, recently. In fact, um, Treasurer Rush got up and testified. Some of the authors of the law testified. They had questions from senators. Basically, people were saying, like, it's hard to implement. It needs a little more tweaks. Uh, one of the things that most people agreed about in that hearing was taking out the city and county part. Uh, Russ said that that was never intended to be in the final version of the bill. He actually voted for the bill when he was a state representative before he became state treasurer. And he said that was not supposed to be in there. And so he's fine with taking that out. He'd also like to kind of tighten up the way pension systems take exemptions. He said that it's, it's a little overly broad. He's in a kind of uh, battle with the pension system, the Oklahoma Public Employees Retirement System, about how they took their exemption. He was alone, no vote, when they voted to take that exemption back in the summer. So he said it needs to be tightened up and have a better system of, of taking exemptions uh, for smaller points rather than just a broad exemption overall. All right. Well, thanks, Paul. Uh, you can read all of Paul's coverage of uh, that law restricting Oklahoma pension investments, as well as his other work covering state government, you will find it all on our website, oklahomawatch.org. Keaton Ross covers democracy and criminal justice for Oklahoma Watch. In his latest Democracy Watch newsletter, he wrote about a pending challenge to an initiative petition that seeks to raise Oklahoma's minimum wage to $15 per hour by 2029. Keaton, who filed that initiative petition? It was Kelsey Cobbs, who is a pastor at a church in Weatherford, and Dustin Phelan, who is a business manager for a Tulsa-based uh, labor union. Well, if uh, this state question were to pass, how uh, would it propose to increase the minimum wage over the next several years? So it would start by increasing it from the current $7.25, which is the federal minimum wage, up to $9 per hour starting in 2025. And then there would be uh, a $1.50 increase every year up until 2029 when it finally hits that uh, $15 per hour total. Well, who's trying to keep that off the ballot? The State Chamber of Oklahoma and the Oklahoma Farm Bureau uh, filed a challenge to it that is pending as of last week. What argument do those groups uh, use in their challenge? One of the main points of their argument is that it essentially gives too much power to the federal government to determine that. Um, one, one of the, the cruxes of the proposal, uh, the, the proposed state question, is that after 2029, when it hits $15 per hour, um, once you get on to, to 2030 and beyond, it's based off of um, an urban wage, consumer wage index. I may be getting the wording off a little bit there, um, but that uh, it's a report that the, the federal U.S. Department of Labor puts out on wages and the increase after 2030 
would be based off of that. Um, and essentially their argument is that uh, that's that's not indicative of, of the reality in Oklahoma compared to other states that might have a higher cost of living. It, it takes power away from the state legislature, that sort of thing. When do we think the Oklahoma Supreme Court will rule on that challenge? There's not a set deadline. Um, it's expected that a ruling will come um, in, a, in a few months, but uh, not something that we can point out and say this will be here in, in two weeks or something, um, but certainly something to keep an eye on. And what happens if the court approves the challenge? So it's it it's a little bit complex in that um, it, it could be a full, you know, back to the drawing board. It could be um, you know, certain parts of the the gist or the the language in the ballot, um, they could rule that that needs to be tweaked. Um, but if if it's sort of a siding with with the argument that this is taking away power from the state legislature, there's precedent not to do this. Um, it, it would sort of be back to the drawing board in that case. And what if the court says it's all right and lets it move forward? So then there would be. Uh, they would set a date for the organizers to start collecting signatures. Once that date is set, they would have 90 days. Um, they would have to collect at least 92,263 signatures um, in that 90-day period. Um, generally, uh, organizers of this this kind of effort try to get far beyond that total uh, in case there are challenges or to the validity of certain signatures, that sort of thing. Um, so it, it would sort of trigger that 90-day period. Well, is there a chance that this initiative could show up on the November 2024 ballot when we're voting for president? There's a chance if uh, we get a ruling from the Supreme Court in a few months and there's a there's a date set for the signature collection and, and whatnot. Um, but there's no sort of statute or, or law that says that, um, you know, an initiative petition has to appear on a general ballot. Um, of course, we saw that earlier this year uh, and last year when the, the recreational marijuana vote was set for uh, March 7th on, on you know, a, not a, a general election date. Um, the medical marijuana vote, you might recall, in 2018 was on a June primary date. So um, it's possible, but there's no guarantee that, that it will be on that November ballot if it, it uh, overcomes this challenge. All right. Well, thanks, Keaton. Uh, you can read all of uh, Keaton's coverage of that proposed state question, as well as his other coverage related to democracy and criminal justice. You'll find it on our website, oklahomawatch.org, where you can also subscribe to his weekly newsletter, Democracy Watch. You've been listening to Long Story Short, a weekly podcast that helps you get deeper into the investigative stories reported by Oklahoma Watch which you can find on the web at oklahomawatch.org. This episode was recorded at the AT&T Podcast Studio. For Oklahoma Watch, I'm Ted Struley. Thanks for listening. Well, friends, it's that time of year. November and December is our big fundraising push at Oklahoma Watch. We are a 501c3 nonprofit independent news organization that brings you investigative and explanatory reports from all over Oklahoma. And in November and December, we have an opportunity to triple any donations that come our way. The Miami Foundation matches dollar for dollar, and this year we're 
delighted to say the Arnall Foundation here in Oklahoma is doing the same thing. So any donations at all, every dollar we get in turns into $3, which helps ensure our success in 2024 so we can keep bringing you all that in great investigative work. If you'd like to donate and support the cause, if you enjoy the podcast, our website, our newsletters, our radio pieces, please visit our website, oklahomawatch.org. Click on the Support Us tab on the menu and know that every dollar you are able to give is going to be tripled. That's also true if you make a year-long pledge. If you pledge $10 a month, that counts as $120 toward the matching gift. So your $10 a month turns into $360. Multiply that out any way that makes sense to you. We rely on the support of our readers and listeners and greatly appreciate your help. Thanks for listening. Newsmatch runs through December 31st. We greatly appreciate every bit of support.